Good morning to each of you. It is good to be back with you. Many thanks for joining with us in prayer this past week as we traveled back to southern Ontario. We returned home in a far better mind than we, frame of mind than we departed and are exceedingly thankful for the many answers to specific prayers over the course of the week. And again, thankful for the saints here and your support uh, over the past few days. I uh, invite you to turn with me now, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 13. We're going to skip around a little bit in the book of Luke today, four or five different passages of Scripture, uh, beginning in Luke 13. Um, if you've accompanied this series in Luke, you are well aware by now that back in the fourth chapter, the Lord Jesus visits his hometown of Nazareth. He enters into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He takes the scroll penned by the prophet Isaiah. He opens it and he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Me. Because he has anointed me. To do what? To preach. To proclaim good news to the poor. Guess what? We are the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. You guessed it. We are the captives. He has sent me to proclaim the recovery of sight to the blind. We are the blind. He has sent me to set at liberty those who are oppressed. We are the oppressed. He has sent me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor is simply this. That God is willing to forgive us. He is more than willing to forgive us. He abounds in mercy toward those sinners who come to him through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he pours out forgiveness upon them. It is the year of the Lord's favor. This is good news to the poor. This is liberty to the captives. And this is recovery of sight to the blind. How are we to respond to that message? How are we to respond, react to the Lord Jesus, his work, his ministry, his message, his preaching? Uh, Luke tells us in the rest of his narrative. And basically his answer is threefold. First, we respond in faith. That's what we saw two weeks ago. We receive the Lord Jesus. We embrace the Lord Jesus. And to believe in the Lord Jesus means simply this. We look away from our merit to God's mercy as the basis upon which he receives us. And mercy that he dispenses toward us in and through and on account of Jesus Christ. We look away when it comes to salvation. Look away from our merit, anything in us. And we hold securely, tightly to God's mercy in Christ Jesus. The second response is repentance. And the third response is self-denial. And so you've guessed it. Our subject for today is repentance. Lord willing, we'll look at that third response, self-denial, next Sunday. But the subject before us 
The motif that is going to occupy our minds and our hearts today is this second response flowing from faith, repentance. And at the outset, I want to suggest to you, or rather, I want to submit to you that the subject of repentance is perhaps one of the most important subjects that we could discuss as a church in our day. I think it is one of the most important subjects that the church in general could discuss. And I even submit to you that it is perhaps, if not the most important, one of the most important subjects that we as Grace Community Church could be wrestling with in our day. The subject of repentance. I say that because I firmly believe that repentance has fallen on hard times. A lot of people don't think repentance is necessary. And there are an equal number of people who are absolutely confused when it comes to what repentance is. A lot of people shy away from the subject. A lot of, the peop- a lot of people never go there. And for many people, repentance is a foreign language. Unclear, uncertain as to what it is. Why is that? I think there are a number of factors at play, but I don't want to take the entire morning belaboring those factors. I want to give you just one, what I think is probably the most prominent reason why repentance has fallen on hard times. Here it is. Repentance hurts. It hurts a lot. We don't like to hurt. We want the easy road. We want the easy path. And repentance is a road we would rather not go down. We would rather not travel because it is painful. The voyage of the Don Treader. Do you remember it? C.S. Lewis, one of his classics. And so those two little children, uh, Edmund and Lucy, right? They find themselves yet again in the land of Narnia. This time they are accompanied by whom? Eustace. And Eustace is a self-centered, self-absorbed, selfish little B-R-A-T. Is he not? He is. Here's what is scandalous. Eustace is you and Eustace is me in the mind of C.S. Lewis. And there he is in the land of Narnia, this self-absorbed little creature, always causing trouble, always looking out for himself and no one else and always inflicting hurt on those around them. They're accompanied, the three of them, by Caspian. Off they go in search of the lost knights and on their journey, they find themselves on an island. Eustace separates himself from the others. Off he goes, I guess, exploring, finds a cave, in the cave, a treasure. He literally thinks he has hit the jackpot. This is it. This is the answer to all of his problems, this wealth. It will mean power. It will mean prestige. It will mean control. It will mean he will finally be able to lord it over Caspian and and Edmund and and Lucy and others. Uh, He thinks this is it. He does not understand that the treasure is cursed. He takes a bracelet. He puts it on. He turns into a dragon. And there he is, unable to do anything to change back. Time passes. Whom does he encounter? 
Aslan. And Aslan commands Eustace, the dragon, to remove the scales from his body. And as soon as Eustace removes one, what happens? It grows back. He removes another, and it grows back. It is an exercise in futility. Aslan then says what to him? Extremely significant, folks. Profoundly significant. You're going to have to let me go deeper. That's what Aslan says to Eustace. You are going to have to let me go deeper. Enough of your superficial repentance. You're going to have to let me probe the wound. You're going to have to let me tear those scales from your body. And Eustace relates what happens next. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off of me, it hurt worse than anything I have ever felt. What was it? It was repentance. As Eustace is brought face to face with precisely who he is in the sight of God. That's Lewis's point. That is precisely why many of us never travel this road. It is too uncomfortable. It is too unpleasant. It is far too painful. Let me speak pastorally. One-to-one. Are you in the clutches of worry this day? Don't raise your hand. Don't say anything. You answer in your mind. Are you in the clutches of worry this day, right now? It's a sin, right? We all know that. Are you in the clutches of worry? Are you in the clutches of lust? Your mind's a cesspool. Let's face it. Are you in the clutches of envy? Are you in the clutches of anger? Are you in the grip of bitterness? All right, you can answer those questions. Are you struggling this day with addiction? Whatever the form of addiction, you know it is an addiction. Are you chiefly concerned as you take stock of your life with your personal ease and comfort? My personal ease and comfort. As long as I'm happy, as long as I'm content, everything's going smoothly, it's all good. Are you harsh, critical, critical? And judgment when it comes to your assessment of others. Are you guilty of sexual immorality? That might very well apply to someone or multiple people here this day for all I know. Are you guilty of sexual immorality? Are you indifferent to spiritual things? Are your relationships crumbling? Relationship with your parents. Relationship with your children. Relationship with friends. Relationship with your church. Please take stock. You're the common denominator. Meaning what? They're actually not the problem. You are. Are your relationships crumbling? Are your words poisonous? Are you short, testy, impatient? Are you characterized by destructive patterns in the way you think? Destructive patterns in the way you live. All right, I'm going to hazard the guess that at least for one of you, 
the answer was an affirmative. As a matter of fact, I'm going to hazard a guess that for the vast majority of us, in some measure, to some degree, the answer is affirmative. We need to what? Repent. We need to repent. But it is painful. It is unbelievably painful. But the good it produces is immeasurable. I can recall, I don't remember the exact year, somewhere in the 90s, 97, I guess, Allison and I were in Africa and Angola. I came down with a fever. And if you're in Africa and you get a fever and the chills, they immediately think what? Malaria. To this day, I don't know if it was malaria, but you get the fever, they treat you for malaria. The prophylactics, whatever it is, the pills, the meds, they pump into you, taking them orally. Those pills were horrendous. I mean, they were terrible. They knocked me out for probably two or three days straight. I had absolutely no idea where I was, who I was, or what was going on around me. It was an extremely painful experience. But believe you me, malaria is far worse. And so taking the pills, absolutely necessary to deal with the danger of malaria. This is repentance. Repentance is unpleasant. Repentance involves a cost. Repentance is, as we've seen, painful. And yet repentance is the pathway to blessedness. And how we must be convinced of this. Repentance is the gateway to healing. And so what I want to convey to you from Luke, five different passages of scripture, are five truths concerning repentance. And I pray by God's spirit we will all be clear on this before we depart from this place today. Number one, the first truth concerning repentance, it is absolutely necessary for salvation. You cannot be saved without repenting. You can't. It is absolutely necessary for salvation. Luke 13, you've already found the place in your Bible. Follow along as I begin reading in verse one. There were some present at that very time who told him, told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Far too many people today are asking the wrong questions. As a matter of fact, far too many people today are asking questions that aren't even questions. And so a common question that isn't even a question that you often hear asked in our day is this. Why did that happen to those poor people? Why did that earthquake you know, destroy that entire village? Why did that volcano take away those homes? Why did that conflict cost such life? And as we look around at the world and the tragedies so prevalent in our world, whatever the nature of those tragedies, wherever they are occurring, the question that people often ask is this, why did that happen to them? It's not a question. The question doesn't even exist. Because for the Lord Jesus Christ, the question is what? Why didn't that happen to you? That's 
the question. And the answer to the solution is what? The Lord Jesus Christ himself from his own lips. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And it will be far worse than the the tower of Siloam falling to the ground. It will be far worse than Pilate mingling the blood of the Galileans with their sacrifices. Here we are speaking of eternal condemnation in a place called hell. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It is so antithetical to the thinking of our age. Dare say, it is so antithetical to thinking, to the thinking of many within the professing church in our day. A preacher has declared, or written rather, the biblical teaching about salvation has been drained of its meaning to the degree that many today claim to have experienced it without undergoing any transformation. I think that bears worth repeating. The biblical teaching about salvation has been drained of its meaning to the degree that many today claim to have experienced it. I'm saved without undergoing any transformation. Can I be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ while living an unchanged life? The answer is no. Looking at the lives of the vast majority of professing Christians in our day, you would think the answer was yes. That I can believe in the Lord Jesus, but my faith in the Lord Jesus has absolutely no effect or impact upon the way I live. According to popular Christianity, God is a loving father who wants me to be happy all the time. No, he isn't. According to popular Christianity, The cross is merely an event which God allowed to happen to show me how special I am. No, it wasn't. According to popular Christianity, Jesus loves me unconditionally. No, he doesn't. According to popular Christianity, Jesus wills my prosperity, not my adversity. No, he doesn't. According to popular Christianity, Jesus shows great latitude when it comes to what I believe and how I behave. No, he doesn't. According to popular Christianity, Jesus has not ordained a narrow gate that leads to a narrow way. Yes, he has. And it's called repentance. Unless you repent you will all likewise perish. Absolutely necessary for salvation. Here's the second truth concerning repentance that we better be clear on. It is a way of life. Back to chapter 11. Well-known text, Luke 11, verse 1. Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. 
and lead us not into temptation. This is the disciples' prayer. This is the believers' prayer. What's the petition right there in the middle of it? Father, forgive us our sins. Repentance is not something we merely do at the start of the Christian journey. Repentance is the Christian journey. It is a way of life. We are saved. And the moment we are saved, we embark on a life of repentance, of confessing our sins before our Father. Also, be so clear on this. Here we go. Much confusion, but clarity is so important. Repentance is not the cause of salvation. What was my first point? It is necessary for salvation. I did not say it is the cause of salvation. Repentance is not the cause of salvation. What is the cause of salvation? God's grace. God's gift of salvation through his son, the Lord Jesus, which we simply receive with outstretched hand, we receive through faith. How am I saved? I'm saved through faith alone. What must I do to be saved? You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. But all who believe in the Lord Jesus... All who receive the Lord Jesus then embark on a journey, do they not? They enter through a narrow gate. They are now on a narrow way. And what are the two marks of that way, of that way, that journey that leads to eternal life? They are repentance and self-denial, absolutely necessary for salvation, not as the cause, not as the cause of salvation, not even as a requirement, a basis upon which God forgives us. No, he forgives us on Christ's account alone and the fact that we have received the Lord Jesus through faith. But having received him, we embark on the way to eternal life. And that way is characterized by repentance. When we speak of the way to life, Faith is not alone. It is never alone. It is always accompanied by repentance and self-denial, a way of life. Here's the third truth concerning repentance. We're going to go all the way back to chapter 7 for it. A text we have already dabbled in on a couple of occasions in weeks past, but it's worth going to again. It is beautiful in its description and profound found in its message. Here's the truth. Repentance means sorrowing for sin. And so chapter 7, pick it up in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Here is a woman whom Luke describes as a sinner, a woman conscious of her sin before her Savior, 
And her only recourse is what? To weep at his feet, wetting them with her tears, wiping them with the hair of her head, kissing them and anointing them with ointment. In vivid color, is it not? It is an example of what we read back in Psalm 51, verse 17. Remember David's prayer of confession. Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. A broken and a contrite heart, you will not despise. Repentance means sorrowing for sin. But alas, the confusion. Oh, the rampant confusion when it comes to what it means to sorrow for sin. It was just made a deep impression upon me this past week. I was reading a book, and in this book, the author was um, grappling with the prevalence of shame in our society. Shame. And... um, dissatisfaction, almost what we would call self-dislike that plagues our society. And he said, Here, here's evidence of it. Here's evidence of it. Of, uh, I think the survey was of the entire United States that um, of all the prescriptions, medical prescriptions filled out by doctors in the past year, a, a third of them go unfilled. And this is for people with serious physical ailments, Go in, they see their doctor, maybe they've even undergone surgery, and there's some sort of prescription given, medication necessary for the recovery, that of all these prescriptions, a third of people don't even bother to fill them. A third don't even fill their prescription. Another third fill the prescription, but they take the medication. They do not follow the directions governing the medication. They'll mix three days in a row, or they'll take this one or forget that one. And unless taken as directed, it ultimately does no good. So you have two-thirds of people prescribe medication for their own physical health. One-third of them don't even fill the prescription, or another third do, but are then extremely careless when it comes to actually taking it. Another survey. People, the United States of America. When it comes to their pets, their cat, their dog, their parrot, whatever, their pet gets ill. The vet writes a prescription. Almost 100% fill the prescription. And they administer it faithfully according to the directions, according to the vet's counsel. Why is it people are far, show far more care for their four-legged furry animal than their own health. How is it that people would be far more vigilant when it comes to caring for their pet themselves? And this author, he is is suggesting, affirming, arguing, and I think rather convincingly so, that what we have in our society today is just this prevalence, widespread prevalence of shame, of guilt, of dislike, to such a degree 
that a significant percentage of the population view their pet as of greater significance than themselves. I think it's verifiable. I think as we engage with people, and I'm speaking of unbelievers mostly here, as we engage with unbelievers, we will find, not in every instance, but we will find to a large extent, a great extent, there is a sense of shame. There is a sense of guilt. Again, we can use that word dislike. And we even find those things when we move from unbelievers into the realm of believers, the church, we find those things very prevalent in our day as well. Here's the problem. A lot of people, a great number of people, most people, the vast majority of people, dare I say, mistake that for repentance. That is not repentance. Having a low self-esteem is not repentance. Experiencing shame and regret is not repentance. Feeling rotten is not repentance. Feeling unworthy is not repentance. Feeling shame isn't repentance. Feeling remorse isn't repentance. None of these things constitute what it means, biblically speaking, to repent of our sin. When we repent of sin, truly repent, we are very clear as to the cause of our sorrow. And the cause of our sorrow is the overwhelming love of God as demonstrated in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I realize my sin is against such love. I realize my sin is rebellion against love. I recognize that my wrongdoing, my, my flagrantly disobeying the will of God, acting contrary to know what, what I know is true, I am in essence despising such wondrous love as revealed in the Lord Jesus. And my apprehension of that reality melts my heart. And I sing. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my eyes to tears. We're not talking about a lack of self-esteem. We're not talking about a poor self-image. We're not talking about the shame that plagues so many in our society today. We are talking about a clear apprehension of my sinfulness in the overwhelming light of the glory of God as revealed at Calvary's cross where he poured out his love upon humanity. And seeing that, I recognize my sin and I'm broken for it. Oh, the focus of godly sorrow is my sin. Oh, hear these words. Take issue with me later if you like. Or not. It's up to you. Friends, we do not need to address past painful experiences. You really don't. You're being told 10,000 times you do. You really don't. We don't have to address past painful experiences. Experiences. That's the whole rage of psychology today, is it not? Everything is rooted in the past. Everything can be explained in the past. Friends, our core problem, our core problem is not what was done to us, but what resides within us. 
Did you hear me? That is not to say that some of the things perhaps done to us were not grievous, wrong, and a stench in the nostrils of the Almighty, and there may be a need to address them. I'm not saying that. I'm saying this. It's not your main problem. It's not my main problem. Our core problem, chief problem, is not what is happening outside of us, what is done to us in the past, in the present, in the future. It is what dwells within us. Repentance focuses on the problem, the issue, as it resides deep within. And this true sorrowing for sin, its mark unmistakable, it leads to hungering and thirsting after righteousness. It leads the individual to put sin to death. It leads us to strive in the words of Hebrews 12, 14, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Oh, I've repented. I've got no interest in pursuing holiness. Friend, you have not repented. You clearly have no clue as to what it means. Because where there is repentance, there will be a desire to put to death that which is now the object of our enmity and was the cause of such grief. And we will strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Here's the fourth truth. It builds a little bit on the third. Repentance means turning from sin. Go with me now all the way over to chapter 15. Repentance means turning from sin. Well-known narrative again. The prodigal son, off he goes, reckless living. The last phrase in the 13th verse. And we pick it up in the 14th verse. And when he had spent everything... The prodigal leaving his father's home, taking his share of the inheritance, squandering it all, living however he pleased. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, When he came to his right mind, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. That is repentance. It is a turning from sin to God. That word turn is a fascinating little word. It merits a careful biblical study. You find it for the first time way back in Genesis 3.19. God speaking to Adam, to dust, you shall return. Repent. To dust, you shall return. To repent is to return to God having turned from sin. How many in our day are content with an artificial repentance? Most people being stung with the sense of their sins will hold down their heads, come to church, pray, hear the word and perform other duties for a while, for a while. Then once the memory fades, they will return to their sin. That is not repentance. That is merely regret. That is merely regret. 
In the New Testament, two different Greek words translated repent. It gets confusing at times because one of them is really biblical repentance, the other is unbiblical repentance. One is godly repentance, one is ungodly repentance. Let's differentiate between the two by thinking in terms of repent, true repentance, and regret. Lots of people regret. They regret the mess they've made of their lives. Most people regret that, the mess they've made of their lives. They regret the poor choices they've made. They regret the negative consequences of their actions. They regret the suffering, the disappointment, the frustration, and the shame. When we regret, we feel the pain. We feel the anguish. We feel the discomfort. When we regret, we want the mess to go away. We know we've erred. Even sin, sure, call it sin. And we know God has distanced himself. We are frustrated and perplexed. We wish things were different. Here's the thing. We don't do anything about it. We aren't willing to accept the fact that we are the problem. We aren't willing to tear down the idols that have caused the mess. And so Esau regretted. Folks, the man never repented. Saul regretted, but he never, ever repented. Ahab regretted, but he never repented. Judas, come to the New Testament, regretted, went out and hung himself. But the man never repented. Oh, be clear on the difference. Regret, regret, regret. The world is full of people who regret. Have you repented? They're light years apart. Yes, I regret the mess. I regret the problems. I regret the confusion. I wish I could turn back the clock. I wish it would just all go away. I wish someone would clear up the mess. That is not repentance. Repentance is when we just stop and we understand I'm the problem. And the problem dwells within, resides deep within, and I have sinned against the holy God. And I turn from my sin. I turn from love of self. I turn from my idols. And I go home like the prodigal. I stand before the Almighty and I declare, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Far too many people are in the grip of what is known as the feel-good doctrine of automatic forgiveness. There is no such thing. The feel-good doctrine of automatic forgiveness. Simply put, they believe in a gospel that promises forgiveness without requiring change. There is no such thing. Just as I am, the most sorely abused hymn in the history of the church, Just as I am, I believe, and I'll stay just as I am. God does receive us just as we are. He does to change us into what we are not. Always. He receives you just as you are to make you into what you are not. And the pathway to that is a life of repentance. We have only repented of our sin. And we're prepared to let go of it. There's the difference between regret and repentance. We have only repented of our sin when we are prepared to let go of it. 
Here is the fifth truth concerning repentance. Quickly, still in the 15th chapter, all the way back to the third verse. The truth is this. Repentance makes heaven rejoice. And the text needs no explanation. Luke 15, verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Is there really a righteous person who needs no repentance? That's not what the Lord Jesus is saying there. What's he saying? The 99 who think they are so self-righteous that they need no repentance repentance doesn't stop verse 8 another parable or what woman having 10 silver coins if she loses one coin does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it when she has found it she calls together her friends and neighbors saying rejoice with me for I found the coin that I had lost just so I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents, repents. It is necessary for salvation. It is a way of life. It means sorrowing for sin. It means turning from sin. And it makes all heaven rejoice. There you have it, my friends. So you come to me this week and say, Stephen, I was listening on Sunday, and you know, there is something in my life. Oh, there's a list of things. And I do need to repent. What would I say to you? Here's what I would say to you. Are you ready? If it applies to anyone here right now, this moment, you know, you feel that conviction, you're under conviction for sin, and you know, yes, I, I, I need to repent. I need to confess. As the Puritans used to say, they described confession as the vomit of the soul. I need to confess. I need to get it out. I need to repent of this and turn from it back to my loving Heavenly Father. Here will be my six words of counsel to you as we conclude quickly. Number one, I would say this. Make sure you assume responsibility for you. Most people don't. Let's face it. Assume responsibility for you. You are your problem. I am my problem. Take all the guilt on yourself. Stop blaming your spouse, your circumstances, your surroundings. No excuses. Surely we're past all equivocation. No excuses. Assume responsibility for you. Number two, pray for repentance. 2 Timothy 2.25, God may perhaps grant you repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. That the Spirit of God would indeed break your heart, break my heart, 
bring to remembrance how I have sinned against the Almighty, that I might feel it, as we sang early, that it might be as though God is breaking the very bones of my body. And the Spirit of God brings forth that confession so pleasing in the sight of God. I would say to you thirdly, recognize that you have despised God. You've despised, in the words of 2 Samuel 12, 9, you have despised the word of the Lord and done what is evil in his sight. I would add, fourthly, remember that Jesus intercedes for you. Wonderful thought. He intercedes for you. Micah chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. Number five, claim the promise of the gospel. Psalm 51 verse 7, we sang it earlier. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And lastly, rest in God's forgiveness. Forgiveness does not mean that God acts like nothing happened. Nor does it mean that he lessens the consequences of our sins. It means that he dissolves the obligation to punishment for Jesus' sake. And to return where we began. That is good news for the poor. That is liberty for the captives. And my friends, that is recovery of sight for the blind. Our Heavenly Father, we are so dependent upon your Spirit to be working in and through us by your Word. And so we pray that you would pour forth your Spirit this day, fill us with him, that your Word might dwell richly and deeply within each and every one. We pray that your good and perfect will would be accomplished, that as your word goes forth, that it would bear a rich harvest in the lives of your people, that too it might be the means by which you are pleased to demonstrate your power in the salvation of sinners, young and old, male and female. And we ask all of this for the glory of your name and the furtherance of your kingdom. In Christ's most worthy name we pray. Amen.